Hello and welcome to another episode of Schlock Tactics, the movie podcast where we believe badder is better and aim to review the woeful Wells adaptations so that you don't have to. My name is Ash and I'm joined once again by Mark. Oh hi Mark. Hello. So today, as you can tell uh, by the title here, we are going to review... Um, I'm hot on the heels of World Book Day from last week. We're going to review two adaptations from one of my favourite writers, one of the best writers uh, in in history, H.G. Wells, the godfather of, of science fiction. And the two films that were adapted from his famous books, The Island of Dr. Moreau from 96 and The Time Machine from 2002. Uh, before we get into that, just want to mention the last episode we did. It was our Razzie Awards special show. We reviewed all five of the Worst Picture nominees and made some uh, bold predictions, which for the most part came true. Uh, Holmes and Watson, for the most part, did win almost all of the Razzies. Mm. John Travolta somehow didn't get any Razzies. <laughs> I think there's something going on there, maybe some Scientologists on the board, maybe. Um, but I was quite surprised uh, by that. But we got some good feedback from a lot of people who had seen those films since they only came out last year. And uh, yeah, most people tended to agree that Holmes and Watson was just cruel and unusual punishment to yeah. make anybody watch. It was terrible. So if you want to go back and check that show out, if you uh, missed any of those films, you want to know what they were like, or if you saw those films and want to know what we think of them, go back and check it out. It's still available. But today, like I say, we are going to be covering adaptations of the great H.G. Wells First of all, we are going to be talking about a very notorious, very infamous bad movie, The Island of Dr. Moreau from 1996, uh, directed by Richard Stanley for three days before he was fired <laughs> and directed, therefore, <laughs> from that point by John Frankenheimer. We'll, we'll get into the um, behind-the-scenes stuff a bit later because... Uh, they they can and they have made an entire documentary about the making of this film, and uh, and all the all the troubles, uh, starring Marlon Brando, in the yeah. in the title role, Val Kilmer, mm-hmm. Feruza Balk, Ron Perlman, if you were able to spot him in in heavy goat makeup, <laughs> and uh, um, David Thewlis, David Thewlis as well uh, as the sort of protagonist. So, yeah, this is um, one of the one of the early novels that H.G. Wells wrote towards the end of the 19th century. It's been adapted a couple of times, always poorly, pretty much. Um, they did one in the 30s, which is sort of a black and white one called The Island of Lost Souls, which is all right. They did one in the 70s. That was also pretty poor. The third major adaptation of, of The Island of Dr. Moreau. Um, what were your first impressions of this, Mark? I, I wonder, did you know the premise of The Island of Dr. Moreau um, before you watched this? Vaguely? I knew of the story. I don't think I've actually read any Wells. Were you massively surprised to see these sort of beast people then, or were you, you were expecting that um, somewhat? I mean, I'd read the summary of the film, so maybe I spoiled it for myself. <laughs> <laughs> I'd love to think there are people that are watching us not knowing, because yeah. I first saw this when I was maybe 11, and I haven't read any H.G. Wells, and I was like... Holy shit! There's like a beast man and then a monkey man and all sorts. So it was a surprise to me the first time I saw this. Yeah, and I think probably a bit of a surprise when you see what they look like. It was kind of like surprising. It goes into the room with all the cages and there's like a kind of operation going on. <laughs> yeah, that was quite. That's quite like that's quite a jarring. Whoa! Scene. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> and they do they do try and shock you with the appearance of the the characters. So, mm. but you 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 knew a little bit of what to expect then from kind the, of from the yeah movies. yeah. And you'd seen Marlon Brando performances before, I imagine. Yeah. 
Not quite, not quite. Um, I almost didn't recognise him. Same level film. as this. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> it did quite different. Yeah, I mean, it has to be said, most of the people involved in this film were involved purely so they could work with Marlon Brando, yeah. and that turned out to be a bit of a, a bit of a letdown for them. <laughs> but um, certainly Val Kilmer and Ron Perlman only agreed to do this film because of the, um, because of the opportunity to work with Marlon Brando in one of his last sort of films that he would do. Why did Brando agree to do this film? <laughs> um, that I don't know. <laughs> Money and I don't know. Yeah. He may. He, I think he may have been a, a fan of H.G. Wells as well. Hmm. Um, but yeah, the island of Doctor Moreau. Set in the modern day, obviously, rather than the late nineteenth century, with all modern, modern times, modern characters. Uh, the opening credits set over a bit of a sort of mad science montage with loads of like microscopic cells like going mad in the background, mm. plants sort of time lapse growing, you know, <laughs> the usual sort of stuff. Uh, we open on the Java Sea with um, David Thewlis, who's playing the protagonist here, who in this is called Edward Douglas. In the book, is called Edward Prendick. I don't know why they changed it, but he straight away you see he's a, a survivor of a shipwreck. Him and two of his um, two of his fellow shipmates, and um, straight into it, they start having a bit of a knife fight in a dinghy, <laughs> which is always a bad idea. I think if you've seen any 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 uh, anything, you know that. And um, he's just too knackered to even intervene, so he just watches them fight each other over the over the side, and they sink. And there he's the sole survivor of the shipwreck. Drifts for a while until he's picked up by like a, a clipper. Has all these sort of vague dream sequences where people are looking at him, like weird shaped people are looking at him. And then he wakes up to meet um, Montgomery, who is played by Val Kilmer. Clearly in no state to perform most of the film, <laughs> I, I would say. Um, he explains that he's sort of going, or he's going along to this island and... Um, he asks him if he's a doctor because he's sort of giving him injections and stuff, and he says, "No, I'm more of a vet." <laughs> so you get start to get the idea of what's where we're going here. Yeah. But Douglas ends up getting off at the island, and again, there's there's reference to the others will come and pick up the cargo. Douglas is like, "Was that the Islanders? Is that like the savages?" He's like, "Yeah, sort of. You know, the others." Um, they deliver a pallet of bunnies um, to a cage, and Montgomery sort of holds up a rabbit in front of Douglas. So Douglas gives it a little kiss, and then Montgomery breaks its neck. Yeah. And Douglas is like, no, no. <laughs> what did you do that for? <laughs> Start to get some like quite cool POV shots um, from the bushes of like heavy breathing people, mm. um, sort of introducing the, the locals. Douglas is brought to the main house of, of Dr. Moreau, who's still nowhere to be seen. And we're introduced to the Aisa character, who's played by uh, Feruza Bork who uh, listeners will know from maybe Return to Oz, um, but also The Craft that came out exactly the same year as Ella Dr. Moreau, which is quite a cult cult hit. And then uh, later in The Waterboy as Bobby Boucher's girlfriend. Um, She is sort of doing a bit of new age belly dancing and starts flirting with Douglas over his hands, starts like sniffing his hands quite animalistically. (laughs) And then Val Kilmer just sort of steamrolls over the subtleties and goes, yeah, she's a pussycat. <laughs> um, sort of ruining any any subtlety. Mm. For the most part, Val Kilmer did not read the lines that were written for him. So most of what he's saying is his own feeling. Oh, that doesn't yeah. surprise me too much. <laughs> <laughs> most of what he's saying is off the top of his head and what he thinks would be good to, yeah. to be in the script. He didn't, he didn't look at the script. Nor did, nor did uh, Brando. I just wrote, Kilmer looks high as fuck in every scene. <laughs> Because he does, 
He's like mostly got his shirt off and wearing a sarong <laughs> and looks like he's stoned off his tits for the whole film. And I, I don't doubt that that's, that's what, the, what the case was. It's weird, like, being <laughs> on this kind of jungle island where everyone seems stoned. And like, you just think about, like, Marlon Brando in Apocalypse Now where they're in the jungle. Yeah. And everyone's getting high. <laughs> yeah. Pretty much. We're not too far of... removed from that <laughs> yeah, performance. They lock Douglas into his room, but he escapes super easily to the point where what was the, I don't know why they even bothered uh, as you mentioned earlier there he makes his way into a sort of a laboratory where there are like there's a caged animals and then sort of in, <laughs> he sort of interrupts some surgeons who are, who are looking after some sort of multi-titted <laughs> creature um, with like a horse face and like eight tits or six tits whatever like just going <laughs> Yeah, you say looking after, I mean, it's screaming and writhing around. <laughs> but it's giving birth. Yeah. Yeah, it is giving birth that's, to a, yeah, that's true. a weird, lumpy child as well. And then the surgeons all take down their masks and they're all like the wolf boys of Mexico. Yeah. They're all like hairy-faced and you're like, whoa. Asa helps Douglas escape and then they come across one of the first proper beast uh, people, the leopard man, who is just this guy that's like leaning over a stream like, sucking up the water mm-hmm. and you get a first glimpse of the like really awesome like practical effects in this film that were done by Stan Winston who's like a you know, practical effects legend even though it is just a man in like a onesie <laughs> for the <laughs> most part they've put real effort into like the hair and like the face and they've also got like cat eyes and stuff like that so mm-hmm. I thought the leopard man looked pretty cool and then almost immediately after you're introduced to the ape man who's like a baboon man I think he's called Shasimun or something like that it's quite memorable in the book. He's like he calls himself a five, five man, five finger man. Mm. So he he relates to Douglas because he's also got five fingers. And none of the other animals have. Yeah. Get a look at this um, pretty amazing set. I would say as well. It's a sort of shanty town where the where the animal people live. It's all made up of like crashed planes and salvage from planes that have crashed on on the island. Mm. I thought it was a pretty impressive uh, set. This, I think it's. Pretty expensive film. Both of these films were, but this looked quite expensive for the time. They were actually only meant to shoot for six weeks and they ended up shooting for six months. Oh, wow. <laughs> for various reasons. Um, so it was it was definitely an expensive film for one way or another. Mm. Introduced to the Sayer of the Law, which is this massive like goat man who's blind and he's like a vicar and he's played by Ron Perlman in, uh, in heavy makeup. As I said, just wanted to work with uh, Marlon Brando. Don't think he has a scene with him at all in the film. Um, and there we are, 30 minutes into the film, enters Marlon Brando looking mm. ridiculous uh, as Dr. Moreau. This is all his own idea, the way he was looking, you know, he was dressed like some sort of pope with like white face and a lampshade on his head. This is all him. There was no costuming department here. This is him deciding how he was going to play this character. Brought in on a sort of a. It looks like a Pope mobile. It's like a Jeep. But it's yeah. like a Pope mobile. And he's got, yeah, he's got all this weird shit on his face, which he explains later is because he can't stand the heat and the sun. So that's yeah. why he looks like a sort of geisha girl. Yeah, just looks ridiculous. And you start you start to get his, um, his dialogue in this film, which is incomprehensible. Mm. 90% incomprehensible. Yeah, the people do like jokey impressions of him in The Godfather, but this is even worse. Yeah. <laughs> Doing some sort of like 
half-assed English accent, maybe, yeah. um, but mostly just hasn't got his teeth in, and it's just <laughs> what, what, what? You need subtitles for this. Film. Yeah, definitely. Uh, Marlon Brando famously never learned his lines, and um, for this film, as with other films at the time, he wore a tiny radio transmitter in his ear where people were feeding him lines remotely. And this would also sometimes pick up police radio as well. <laughs> and one of my favourite stories about this film, and I, it's, it's on IMDb trivia and Wikipedia, is that Marlon Brando stopped in the middle of a take and repeated what was being said on the police radio and just said, there's been a robbery at Woolworths. Because <laughs> <laughs> they were shooting in Australia, and I guess Woolworths was a thing in Australia as well. But that's like, amazing. That's the weirdest bit of trivia on this film. Maybe. maybe. <laughs> but there's been a robbery at Woolworths. <laughs> I wonder how long it took him to sort of realise that I didn't relate to the film. Uh, at all. Yeah. Mad, Wait a minute, or, what have I just said? How long it took everyone else to realise yeah. that that wasn't in the script. <laughs> yeah. They just went along with it for a while. Okay. So what about this robbery? Yeah. yeah. Where's this Woolworths you want to But like, if you watch him when he's doing it in his film, you can sometimes see him like looking up weirdly to the top right of the camera where perhaps there's a big cue card. Hmm. Or sometimes just stopping in the middle of a line and kind of going... Uh, uh, well, you can tell he's having it fed into his ear. It's just yeah. it's dreadful. <laughs> um, he obviously didn't care. Uh, but yeah, the uh, the idea here is that he all the beast men have um, microchips in the back of their necks and he has this thing around his neck where if he pushes a button it gives them all electric shocks and they can shock them into submissions that's how he's ruling over these these sort of primitive beast men on this island mm. they're not all completely beast like there are four of his children he calls them who are not completely beast like so there's Feruza Bulk who is just a normal quite attractive woman then it sort of goes downhill with like some guy with like cat ears and then there's um, a guy that's got like dreadlocks and like whiskers it's just a, a sort of a motley crew of um, sort of hy hybrids half breeds mm. and it's the idea which is the same in the book is that you know initially he'll try and fuse animals with human DNA and if it works they get to stay in the house and if it goes bad he kicks them out and they go and live in the shanty town where they become more beast than man and that's what creates the the rebellion and the uprising which, mm. which you do see Oh, and of course, <laughs> you, it can uh, you can never forget the um, the character here, which was not in the book or any other adaptation of the film, but what I can only describe as the walking penis that <laughs> accompanies Doctor Moreau everywhere. It's I mean, in the book there is a description of like a small sloth-like creature, a pink sloth-like creature. I can only assume this is that just tiny little pink dick, walking <laughs> the dick, really weird head, just. <laughs> I don't know how to describe him. Yeah, it's just like a thumb. Yeah. Or just like a perfectly smooth penis. <laughs> uh, but only like two foot high, which is quite big for a penis, I suppose. Uh, <laughs> um, I looked him up on IMDb and he only had one other real credit, which is um, a movie that I've seen on many a shelf, but I've never not got around to watching. It's called Ratman, where he plays a small anthropomorphic rat. So I guess that's why he got this gig. Typecast. Um yeah, but I always remember Ratman for the tagline, which was the critter from the shitter, <laughs> which is what they should have called it, really. Yeah. Um, if anyone listening has seen Ratman, let me know if it's any good, if I should check it out, because it was, it was quite a poster, I'll tell yeah. you that. Douglas here is just, I, I don't think he's reading from the script, I just think he's he's being legit here, he just looks at these like four children, look at these people, and then he looks at the little like pink 
maggot man and goes, look at him! <laughs> <laughs> I think this is just his genuine reaction to the uh, to the characters here. They have a bit of a Bible quote-off where they're just constantly quoting pieces of the Bible back to each other, which supports their respective viewpoints, mm-hmm. um, which I think, I think Marlon Brando is probably quite into. There's a, quite a famous scene here, which is much parodied, where Marlon Brando is playing the piano, and on top of his piano, the little pink man is playing a much smaller piano, <laughs> and they're doing a sort of a duet, uh, which is bizarre, again. Um, this, I just wrote just a sequence of, of mumble-logs, not monologues, mumble-logs. Brando just... <laughs> just Marlon Brando dressed in curtains, mumbling to a small dick man is is for most most of his scenes in this film incomprehensive pope incomprehensible pope incomprehensible yeah incomprehensible pope just utter gibberish i think everyone's regretting um getting marlon brando for this film at this <laughs> point he's really not contributing much uh, but from sort of looking quite serious at times and there's this whole subplot which is quite big in the book of they find a, a rabbit in the jungle which has been killed and partially eaten Obviously, by one of the beast men, and one of the one of the laws that they go on about is that you know, you're not meant to eat flesh or fish. You're also not meant to suck up water with your mouth. So we know we saw the leopard man doing that. So probably it's the leopard man that killed the rabbit as well. So, and the leopard man, I think he's called Lo Mai, is his full name. He's given a sort of a trial, pretty quick, really. He just says, "You've eaten flesh," and then one of his children shoots him in the head with a bolt. That's it. <laughs> and then they burn him. And it's uh, it's only from burning him that one of the other characters, who was known as the hyena swine <laughs> in the books and in this, I guess, as well, he discovers that there is a chip in the back of the neck from looking at the bones in the crematorium. So um, he's able to rip his own little microchip out of the back of his neck as well. And that's how he discovers that he's been controlled all along by shocking microchip in the mm. back of his neck. Um, there's a scene where they're sort of in a clearing and um, the beasts are lining up to get their injections from Montgomery. There's this weird sort of pig women, sort of pig women prostitute characters that are like fawning over him, which is <laughs> never really expanded upon, thankfully. <laughs> One of the things I wish I could unsee, the little pink man completely nude. <laughs> um, I don't know why, it just looks like... Well, it looks like a penis. As if he wasn't disturbing enough already. It looks like a perfectly smooth, shiny, ultra-shiny penis <laughs> with a face on it. <laughs> Wicked Willy. <laughs> I don't know why he needed to be naked. I, he couldn't, I couldn't be done with this scene soon enough. Douglas noticed that the hyena's gone a bit rogue. He's sort of over by the, by the trees there, trying not to come out. And then Montgomery realises that the hyena has removed his chip and he's sort of he's on, on the loose. Famous scene here with um, Marlon Brando wearing a bucket on his head. (laughs) This was not scripted. This was not costumed. This was a bucket in the room and he put it on his head because he thought it would be good for the character. And they carried on. Yeah. Because what, are you going to tell Marlon Brando that he's wrong? Yeah. No, you can't do that. (laughs) So he said, you know what my character would wear? A bucket on his head. (laughs) So that's what they did. But also it allows... um, Aisa to scoop ice in the top of it to cool him down because he's an incredibly fat white man in the jungle. And this is not acting. Marlon Brando was physically melting during the shoot of this. Uh, also, so were the people in like several pounds of latex. You know, yeah. but Aisa is 
kind of distraught because she's reverting. Uh, she's got like pointed teeth. She's starting to turn into a cat again. The beasts sneak in to the house in the night. Murrow confronts them, sort of wants to, you know, tries to be uh, compassionate, tries to find out what's wrong with them, but then ultimately gets the button and tries to shock them and realises that the shock doesn't work anymore. And they tear him to shreds in a hammock, <laughs> rip his guts out, and that's the end of Dr. Moreau. <laughs> Marlon Brando, no, not many scenes in this film. Mm. Made, made quite an impact, quite a memorable performance while he lasted. It's become clear that the serum that stops the beast reverting is sort of all gone. Montgomery weirdly kind of takes on the Moreau character from this point. He dresses in the same clothes and puts the weird white makeup on and does, I don't know if he's doing Marlon Brando impression or if they've dubbed Marlon Brando over him uh, with this weird kind of voice again. He goes down to the sort of weird basement where all the beasts hang out and hands out like loads of drugs it kind of quickly turns into a bit of an like a rave, like an orgy. <laughs> There's loads of like pig women like fucking each other, his feet and stuff like that. It gets a bit weird. Until the hyena and his crew bust in and shoot Montgomery. So Val Kilmer's also ki- killed as well. The beasts just all run amok. He goes mad here, like they've somehow got their hands on AK-47s and are like <laughs> just shooting the stuff down. Aisa is fully turning into a cat. I think she ends up getting hung. Chaos ensues without a leader. Yeah. <laughs> Aisa is hung um, by the neck. You see her in silhouette, so she's dead. Mm. Um, lots of shooting and things exploding, I've written, because that's, that's the case. Although I'll give them credit, usually in like these jungle things, like you see junk, like wooden jungle huts exploding and you think, what the fuck? At least in this, they had lots of close-ups of um, gas, drums of gasoline being perforated. So yeah. you think, oh, that's why the the jungle huts are exploding. That that's that's fine then, you know. Mm. All the beasts turn on the hyena. I'm not really sure why. And indeed, as the character is dying, he's just going, why, <laughs> why? I well, I thought the same thing. I'm not sure what's happening here. <laughs> but eventually, uh, Douglas is able to get on a raft and sail away. We get this sort of very very last minute sort of morality ending where. Um, Ron, P- Ron Perlman's character actually survives the entire time and says we don't want anyone else coming here you've done enough yeah. and then Douglas is like yes it's, it's a problem with mankind You know, sometimes I wonder are you the beasts or are we the beasts I'm not so sure and this is like cheesy montage of like riots and people yeah. having fights and war and stuff like that comparing it to like kind of yeah yeah, real life. I guess this was part of the satire that Wells was going for when it was written, but mm. like not quite as clumsy as that. No. Who are the real animals? I'm going to think about that on my on my journey home. <laughs> so there we go. He sails off on his makeshift uh, raft, and that's the end. The Island of Doctor Moreau. What were your overall thoughts on this one? Mark? Um, I enjoyed parts of it. <laughs> yeah, I thought there were some interesting. Uh, performances mm-hmm. um i can definitely tell that it's not they didn't stick to the script no <laughs> shambles when you mentioned that it was a lot of ad-libbed um yeah uh dialogue and sort of not surprised no um but yeah it was uh some interesting themes but it's not the best adaptation ever no um, it's messy <laughs> it's very messy the, yeah. the story isn't very uh 
coherent, doesn't flow very and well. Really, a much better film than this is a documentary called Lost Souls, which is the making of the island of Dr. Moreau. It's a feature-length documentary. I'd recommend anyone go and check that out if you're interested in in what we're talking about here. It goes into all the all the all the sort of behind the scenes stuff, which is much more fascinating on this film than anything that happens on camera. Hmm. Richard Stanley was developing this film for four years because he loved the book so much, and he was fired after three days of shooting, <laughs> mainly because he was clashing with executives. He was massively clashing with Val Kilmer, as was everyone, and yeah, they just didn't like his his sort of attitude, I guess. So they they fired him, but they let him retain his full fee as long as he kept quiet and didn't interfere. They arranged for a taxi to take him to the airport so he could leave Australia, but he did not leave Australia. He ended up wandering about the sort of coast of Australia and, like, staying in a hut somewhere himself, sort of living <laughs> out the story of the Isle of Dr. Moreau. He was like Douglas or Prendick. He's probably um, so distraught of having put four yeah, years into Yeah, he was, like, then... seriously depressed, so yeah. he didn't want to leave. So he just wandered around the coast of Australia for a couple of... of uh, well, months, yeah, because it was six six months. This shoot that is insane mm. for this kind of location shooting. And the funniest story is that he bumped into some of the people who were involved in the production, and they agreed to sneak him in to the makeup department. And he got made up to be one of the Beast Men, and he's actually in the film oh. as an extra, but nobody knew it was him. So he was able to effectively spy on the production of the movie that he wrote and or should have directed, um, but he was disguised as a dog man, which is brilliant. I put four years into this and I'm an extra in it, so yeah. that was it. And then he sort of turned up at the rap party and everyone was a bit um, embarrassed about what happened. Mm. Bruce Willis was originally meant to play um, the Douglas character, but he dropped out because he was getting a divorce. Val Kilmer dropped in to be to be Douglas, also got a divorce. So he asked for a, a forty percent reduction in screen time. I assume he didn't ask for any reduction in his fee. Um, so that's why Val Kilmer ended up playing Montgomery. He should have played Douglas. That was the original uh, idea. Okay. And then they got someone called Rob Morrow to play Douglas, who lasted also three days on set before he begged to be sacked <laughs> and sent home. The producers have something about three days. <laughs> um, at which point... Um, time. Yeah. Thulis was, was brought in to play Douglas. One of my favourite... <laughs> other favourite stories about the production here is that there was one day where all of the extras were made up in full beast costume in the sweltering Australian heat and they were waiting around for six hours... Because Marlon Brando didn't want to come out of his trailer before Val Kilmer. And Val Kilmer didn't want to come out of his trailer before Marlon Brando. <laughs> so so it's a kind of stalemate situation. Stalemate of massive egos that didn't want to come out of their trailer. That's ridiculous. Uh, it's, it's, it has a good sum, summation of, of the film, I think, and its problems, just massive egos. Mm. And um, this John Frankenheimer guy that took over, apparently he wasn't very popular. He was quite old school and strict, whereas Richard Stanley's quite a, a gentle, poetic type. Um, he'd done a few sort of sci-fi and horror films before this, and he was sort of quite well-respected, and a lot of people didn't want to carry on after he'd gone, but they were all contractually obligated, which is why it looks like no one cares, because they don't. They just want to get out of there. Mm. But they were there for six fucking months. It's unbelievable. And I'm not sure if it was John Frankenheimer or another director, but... There was a quote about Val Kilmer once where the, a director said, 
I could be making the story of Val Kilmer's life and I still wouldn't hire that asshole. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, just Val Kilmer, he got a lot of the flack on this, just apparently just a real ass. He, well, he learned his lines, Marlon Brando didn't, but he just refused to say them anyway yeah. to be a dick. Um, was just like bullying people and he th- he just come off of Batman Forever, I guess. Whatever Batman film he did. And he thought he was like a big shot. Which yeah. I, maybe he was. But <laughs> He's not a very good actor and he didn't give a very good performance in this because he was just looked like he was fucked all the time. I don't think anyone really gave a good performance other than uh, David Thewlis was, was quite good. David Thewlis was right. Yeah. He's, he's too good for this film. Probably. Yeah, I thought he... Re- I, I did think he was miscast <laughs> yeah is anyone cast not, properly really he's not really a hero protagonist type is he? he's more of a sidekick or yeah. exposition scientist guy maybe most people were miscast in yeah. this film <laughs> yeah weird that Ron Perlman was in this as well I guess he wasn't and uh, what's the woman's name uh, Feruza Bulk so I think the yeah. only other film I've seen her in is American History X so oh yeah yeah she was in that was uh, two years after this as well yeah yeah in the book there aren't any female characters at all so I thought that was probably a good change to make to have at least some attempt at a female character even if she was a cat woman yeah not cat woman a cat woman yeah um, but yeah it's like it's, it's no wonder that you got the absolute mess on screen when you when you learn about the backstory so uh, I would recommend everyone watch Lost Soul once they've watched The Island of Dr. Moreau if you have to watch The Island of Dr. Moreau <laughs> of course I would recommend more, that, more so that you read the the novel because it is amazing and so, fascinating. You said you grew up with this film and mm. had it on VHS. Did you enjoy it when you were younger? Yeah, I, I thought the monsters looked brilliant, yeah. and they do. They still do. To be fair, I didn't know Marlon Brando was. I didn't know who Val Kilmer was. Well, maybe only Val Kilmer was. But when I was a kid and I saw this film, I just saw these like badass like pig men and leopard men, and I thought they were cool as shit. Mm. Like so, um, I guess you I, would... I still like it in that respect. Yeah, but um, there's just no good performances. It's a special effects movie. That's it, really. Yeah. You know, but at that age, that's all you really care about. Anyway, yeah, so. <laughs> yeah. So this, yeah, this film was my first exposure to H.G. Wells. So it's uh, it took me a long time to actually read anything <laughs> by H.G. Wells. But uh, yeah, The Island of Doctor Moreau. Um, check it out if you've if you've read the book and if you're interested in, in an absolute train wreck of a movie and then watch watch the lost soul documentary because that's way more interesting way more fascinating and richard stanley the director do you know what his next film is going to be um no (laughs) he is going to adapt the color out of space which is a hp lovecraft story Uh. and nicholas cage is going to star wow okay so that's exciting (laughs) that's very exciting sounds like another episode (laughs) nicholas cage in a hp lovecraft adaptation that's that's i can't wait for that so yeah um, look forward to that but Alan Dr. Moreau what a piece of shit but um, good good effects good backstory so check it out okay so the next film that we're going to talk about is The Time Machine uh, which was from 2002 uh, adapted from H.G. Wells very first novel that was published I think 1895 something like that very famous famous novel very influential novel and it had been adapted a couple of times before this most notably in 1960 uh, which is a great film with starring Rod Serling, um, which is what people remember fondly. But by 2002, I guess they thought they'd give it another go with the uh, advancement, or somewhat of an advancement in technology. So this is what we get. We get The Time Machine here, uh, starring Guy Pearce and Samantha Mumba, directed by Simon Wells, the mm. great-grandson of H.G. Wells. Oh, I didn't actually know yeah. that. Yeah. 
So that surely qualifies him to, <laughs> yeah. uh, to adapt the time machine. Guy Pearce is the sort of nerdy, typical uh, professor. Professor Alex mm. doesn't quite fit as a, <laughs> as a name. Uh, it is starting off in 1899, so um, he's like an inventor as well. He's invented the electric toothbrush in 1899. <laughs> he's corresponding with an Einstein in Germany, uh, a, a young-ish uh, Albert Einstein, I suppose. There's all this like wacky historical context, like so. Oh, Einstein's around. Oh, there's a there's a car, and it's like a big deal. Someone's got a car in the street, and it's yeah. like, oh my god, you've got a car. <laughs> like, yes, that's right. I come, I come and drive up and down here every night. Do you, do you want to go? Uh, how does it work? You know, it's all that sort of typical yeah. stuff, just to give you an idea of where we are. But like you say, they do shoehorn in a uh, a scenario here where he proposes to his girlfriend and then gets mugged. And there's a quarrel about the ring and she gets shot and killed. So the idea that... I guess it's a good idea in a sense that it drives him to really achieve time travel. Because mm. in the book, he's just a scientist that wants to be like famous and discover time travel because that's cool. But at least in this film, I think it's maybe not such a bad idea to give him that sort of extra motivation of like, well, maybe I can rewind time and we can stop this happening. I thought we were going to have this kind of Groundhog Day scenario where he yeah. keeps going back and she keeps dying in various ways, but luckily that didn't happen. Well, I was hoping that wouldn't be the case, yeah, yeah. that doesn't happen in the book. <laughs> and I didn't want to spend the whole time in Victorian New York. Yeah, no. yeah he, he tries it at least one more time, doesn't he? Mm. Um, and she gets, and she gets run, run over, over anyway. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's an early indication that, okay, you're not going to be able to stop this from happening. Um, he's gone a bit mad in the meantime and come up with the formulas. And then, it, yeah, you you have the reveal of the time machine itself, which, according to IMDb Trivia, was the biggest and most expensive prop ever at the time of filming. It was fairly impressive. It was quite I think like... the definition of what is a prop and what is a set, I think, yeah. is may, may be borderline there. Once yeah. it becomes massive, is it not a part of the set? It's not a prop if it weighs that much. Surely. If you sit in it. Yeah. If it's a vehicle. <laughs> Yeah, it was. It looked amazing. There was loads of like glass. It looked like um like a lens from a lighthouse or something like that. There was like glass at the front, glass at the back. Mm. A slight improvement on the um the look in the nineteen sixty film. Uh, more glass certainly. Oh, there is actually a cameo. Um, he pops into a florist on the way home, and um, the guy serving him was actually in the nineteen sixty version. Mm. I don't know how old he must be because yeah. in the nineteen sixty version he must have been about. 40. So yeah, this is a pretty old guy here, gets a little cameo in. Uh, guy Pierce, Professor Alex here decides, well, I'm just going to go forward in time then, fuck it. And we get this really cool montage, which is something that ha that it had in the 1960 version as well, and they even keep the mannequin in this one where you see the um, the fashion changing on the mannequin as he's going forward in time. So it'll yeah. be like short skirt, long skirt, short skirt, you know, yeah. hat, no hat, hat. <laughs> um, and in, in the 1960 version, there is a sort of... Um, bombs coming down, planes going over to simulate, you know, the world wars happening and stuff, but this one's a bit more over the top. <laughs> it's ridiculous. Um, <laughs> it sort of starts off quite quite modest, like, yeah, mannequin in the shop window changing fashion. Um, weeds are sort of climbing up the side of the building. The building gets knocked down. The building gets put back up again. And then we just get this... You get, like, <laughs> skyscrapers coming up. And it was just an like... insane zoom out. Yeah, yeah. So it starts to zoom out from, like, Guy Pierce's head. And then we end up on the other side of the moon Yeah. Um, by the end of it. So as you're zooming out, you're like, oh, there are planes going over. Okay, so we're at least in, like, you know, the mid-20th century. Oh, there's a space shuttle. Okay, yeah. we're in the 60s now. 
oh shit, we're on the moon. Like, okay, what year is this thing? Because we're not on the moon yet. Like, there's a lunar colony. Um, we're not sure when this is meant to be. Um, but he eventually stops it in 2030. So 11 years from now, we will have colonized the moon. Um, and it'll be, it, it was some sort of terrifying cyclist utopia. I don't know if this is an in-joke from like, I don't know, someone that didn't like cyclists. But yeah, we'd better get working on this. We've only got 11 years. <laughs> I mean, there are some good cycle paths around, but not like this. Yeah. Um, I noticed everyone wearing like these high collar sort of grey jackets. Um, I thought it looked a bit like North Korea. Yeah. In, uh, in, its, uh, in its aesthetic, you know, that kind of perfectly clean, everyone wearing grey high collars mm. and cycling a lot. <laughs> This is where we're heading, guys. Eleven years. <clears throat> he pops into the uh, the library, um, introduced to this um, character called Vox, played by Orlando Jones. Um, this is a sort of a holographic, like Wikipedia. He's like the yeah. the the physical manifestation of Wikipedia. He pops up and he can tell you anything. It's quite a weird scene. It gets all meta. So he says, "Tell me about the time machine." He goes. Certainly, it was written by H.G. Wells. You know, what? <laughs> but but I'm watching an adaptation of a book yeah. by H.G. Wells. How can this be possible? <laughs> There's even a bit where he says, yes, and the time machine was adapted into a musical, and he starts singing like a bit of a musical. It's very <laughs> odd. Um, and Guy Pearce can't take it anymore. He, he runs out. <laughs> he doesn't like this. It's just driving me insane. <laughs> this dystopian future is too much. It's yeah. just H.G. Yeah. Wells, the musical. I think maybe a play on the War of the Worlds musical version that there is. He chooses to fast forward only only seven years to twenty thirty seven for some reason, just to see what would happen. And unfortunately, in seven years it's all gone to shit. The world has been decimated by the moon sort of falling out of the sky and crumbling like Majora's mask. Yes, yeah, what I was thinking. <laughs> what if the moon fell? Well, this is what would happen. And this doesn't last very long. This is one scene and then that's it. Yeah, it's very brief. Yeah. Um, there's some people on the street saying, yeah, the lunar colonies really screwed up the gravity on that one. <laughs> <laughs> Someone like pressed the wrong button and the moon fell to bits and, and fell on the earth. Yeah. Very weird. I actually read that, I don't know if this is true, but I read that the release of this film was delayed by five months because they were afraid that the moon colliding with Earth would be too similar to 9-11. Oh, okay. <laughs> not too similar to Majora's Mask that came out like <laughs> two not years before. Then, yeah. <laughs> uh, I think everyone was paranoid in 2001, yeah, weren't they? Yeah. Not to show any skyscrapers yeah. being destroyed. He ends up getting kind of like into a struggle with these guys and they kind of like knock him out so that he falls back into his time machine but he like pushes the lever and it starts like whizzing forward into the future, but he's like unconscious and can't stop it. Hmm. So we go from 2037 to 802,701 <laughs> AD, I guess. Like in, in this time, he's able to sort of go through several ice ages. Uh, the grass grows, the grass goes away. The snow comes, the ice covers him. He gets a little bit of like frost on his face while he's unconscious. Um, the rivers dry up, the rivers come back. It's, you know, it's it's kind of cool, like time lapse effects, I suppose. The fact that there's any life left on Earth in eight hundred thousand years' time is uh, mm. a bit far fetched, I think. Yeah, surprising. Yeah. <laughs> <clears throat> when he wakes up, he's being tended to by this sort of 
tribal girl called Mara, who is played by Samantha Mumba. Mm. I'd be really surprised if anyone listening knows who Samantha Mumba <laughs> is. Uh, but for, for, for reference, she was a one-hit uh, wonder Irish pop star who had one hit in, I guess... Around this time. 2001. Yeah. <laughs> maybe 2002. Yeah. Right before this came out. And I looked in her IMDb and the only other major film she did after this was a, a film called Boy Eats Girl. <laughs> which is not, not as sexy as it sounds, I think, as a zombie film. Um, I wonder what she's doing now. Don't know. If you're listening, Samantha Mumba, get in touch. <laughs> um, but at the time, she was very, very low budget sort of Britney Spears, Christina Aguilera type figure. So. Mm. That was enough to get you cast in The Time Machine. She's also joined here by her real-life brother, playing the younger character here. And so we, uh, he comes out into the village, and this, this is what, you know, what the, uh, the characters from the book called the Eloy uh, people. So in the book, and certainly in the 1960 film, they're, like a, a, they're a bit like the, the people in Zardos. They're like, they've lived in Utopia for so long that they've become really like complacent and like numb twisted it a little bit here in that it's some sort of post tribal uh, kind of community where they've almost gone back to being indigenous peoples after technology has sort of risen and fallen mm. and they do sort of allude that after the moon fell apart <laughs> that sort of put a, put a stop to technology rising which i think is an interesting idea would there be some at some point? Would there be an event so catastrophic that technology would start like rolling backwards? Because mm. we haven't got there yet, but it has happened before. Think of like the technology of Rome and ancient Egypt, that was rolled back when we got to the Dark Ages and nobody had any sort of tools or technology, and then it rolled forward again. So it's an interesting idea that that in the, it's going to happen again. Yeah, in yeah. the distant future, we won't be super technically or logically advanced because it's got to roll back at some point. You gotta, you gotta get carried away. We get too far, and we yeah. realize that it's not good. <laughs> and that's kind of alluded to when they're they're sitting on top of the huts, and you can still see the broken fragments of the moon suspended in the sky, which yeah, I thought was yeah. quite cool. That was cool. It was like a constant reminder to them to like not get too tech heavy. <laughs> Stick to the simple, the wind and the seas and the canoes and uh-huh. stuff like that, which is what they sort of do in this cliff top village, the Eloy village. He tells. Mara straight up, look, I'm from the past. And she goes, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and they all laugh, and she tells them that he's a wandering idiot who's hit his head. Not to take him too seriously. I actually read that um, Guy Pierce said he took this role because he wanted to be taken less seriously. <laughs> <laughs> Which I, I suspect he maybe said that after the critical reception, not before. Yeah. He does stay with Mara and her younger brother. Um, they arrange to go flower picking the next day so it really is a utopian society nothing bad can happen here right mm. but no in the night uh, Professor Alex and the younger brother wake up from a nightmare where some creatures were chasing them through the jungle which is a bit of a tease of the Morlock characters there's some quite cool I quite enjoyed the like the ruins of New York that were still in this place because yeah. you, you got to remember that he hasn't moved He's still in what was New York. So this, yeah. the Eloy village is still where New York was. So like you've got like Tiffany um, okay, logo, yeah. which is like crumbled. Brooklyn Bridge. Brooklyn and, Bridge, like yeah. Empire. And it's all that. Mm-hmm. I thought that was really cool. Um, reminded me a bit of like Planet of the Apes where they keep like relics of, of, of the old world. Mm. 
as a sort of a reminder. Uh, they sort of go do a bit of canoeing together. They have a wind farm that they've been running uh, in the country. Uh, he finds his time machine again. It's still working absolutely fine, which is good. But then, holy shit, the Morlocks attack. Mm. The Morlocks. Now, these are... Um, there's some pretty cool characters in the book, like they're described as ape-like sloth-like subterranean creatures that come up and snatch the Eloi in the night. And in the 1960 version, they did look like sloths yeah. with like bad 70s haircuts. Almost like the um, trolls or something like that. Yeah, right? yeah, they were a bit like the trolls from Skyrim, weren't kind they? Kind of like orcish trolls or something. Yeah, <laughs> I thought it was kind of a cool design. Like I thought they were like leathery alien Turtle monkeys mm. is, is the, how best I can describe it. And you get two different kinds. You get the ones that are like the scouts that have like blowpipes. Mm. And then you get these fucking massive ones that come out of the sinkholes in the ground. You've got long hair. Yeah. And um, I don't know about you, but I thought these ones were a dead ringer for Iggy Pop. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's like wiz- wizened face, <laughs> veiny torsos. Yeah. Uh, and the more, true. the more the film went on, the more I thought Iggy Pop had sneaky, sneaky cameo in this. <laughs> These trolls have done too many drugs. Looked <laughs> <laughs> <Don't> like they had done too many drugs. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right. Trolls is a good way to describe them, actually. Um, but they are, they are beefy. They are aggressive. So they come up and kind of. Uh, attack people and they end up abducting Mara. They suck her back down into the uh, sinkhole, and the rest of the tribe are just like, "Oh well, happens, you know. <laughs> never mind." And guy Pierce is like, "You what? You've got to, you've got to go save them." He's like, "No, we don't want to do that." He's like, "Well, I will then." He's so. trying to like borrow through the ground, isn't he? Yeah. Like, yeah. Uh, for a bit more advice, he goes back to see um, to the to the ruins of old New York, and he finds Vox again, this uh, Wikipedia man again, and he's still there. He's sort of been there for 600,000 years, just knocking about. <laughs> and uh, he still knows everything and remembers everything and also knows a little bit about the Morlocks because um, an Eloy had escaped and made it to the ruins and told them all about where it is, what it is, where they live, you know. Mm. Um, so then he descends into the caves, <clears throat> into the Morlock city. And I, again, I was reminded a bit of Skyrim here, like there's some dwarven ruins. Yeah. Lots of steam and cogs and furnaces. I thought that was just, this was a pretty cool set as well, mm. actually. Um, well, it's worth mentioning that the practical effects for this film were also done by Stan Winston. So this is the, the main link between these films, other than H.G. Wells, is mm. Stan Winston did the effects for both films, and they were both largely practical. Cool. And I did like the Morlock effects. I thought they were quite cool. Yeah. Although every now and then they were spliced into CGI when they were like running on all fours and it, it, it lost a little bit of its yeah. uh, effect. Professor Alex gets imprisoned and there's Mara as well, also imprisoned. And then we are introduced to Oscar winner Jeremy Irons. <laughs> Going through clearly a bit of a troubled period here. I don't know if this is around the same time as Dungeons and Dragons film that he did. Um, he is playing a character that is genuinely credited as Uber Morlock. <laughs> and that's about as cool as it sounds. He, he looks ridiculous. He like he looks as ridiculous as Marlon Brando did in <laughs> The Island of Dr. Moreau. And they put a lot more effort into his costume. He looks like an albino goth, like Hellraiser type. Game of Thrones or something. Yeah, like, it just yeah, like, didn't look good. Obviously, they were they were trying to get across that he would be like completely pale and albino because he lives underground, but it wasn't really explained why he's intelligent, why he can talk, and the other ones can't. You know, he was just their ruler. 
he had like a weird spine where his spine was sticking out the back and it was like yeah. translucent. That wasn't explained either. <laughs> he really wasn't in this very long. I, uh, I don't know what he was thinking. There for a paycheck, I guess. He's got like these sort of magic powers where he's able to, to make Guy Pierce sort of hallucinate into seeing what could have been if his girlfriend had lived and they'd have had kids. I'm not sure what the purpose of this is. <laughs> Just to be a dick. <laughs> um, this, I, I got a bit lost here. There was some sort of like attempt at philosophy or like explaining like determinism like you even if you had saved her you would have died or she could never have lived the way you wanted her to live she always had to die and it was very tenuous kind of attempt at like alternate universe time travel yeah it didn't really explain it properly Spiel. it was just very convoluted yeah it was just jeremy irons doing quite a good monologue because he is you know, mostly a good actor and, mm-hmm. and it sounded impressive but I didn't understand it. Rescues Samantha Mamba they sort of escape from the, the Morlock city, there's lots of ropey CGI of Morlocks like bounding through the tunnels, it looks kind of bad uh, the time machine self-destructs everything explodes, just like the end of Isla Dr. Moreau, everything explodes mm-hmm. I feel like every film we review everything explodes <laughs> at the end so that's it, you can't get back, which is actually quite a departure from the book and all the other adaptations, he does go back he leaves the Eloy and sort of they learn a valuable lesson from their time with him and he goes he goes back to his own time and he brings that wisdom of the future back with him and he's able to warn people off against technology and stuff. That's how the book ends and that's how the other films end. But yeah. they chose not to do that here, which I thought was weird. Mm. They have a pretty cool um, scene where there's a bit of a side-by-side of like Alex and Mara walking through the ruins and his old friend and his housekeeper walking through the house obviously would have been in the exact same space so they're like side by side with a split down the middle showing like the past and the present mm. and I thought that was pretty cool yeah and it's kind of a bit of a melancholic ending still because the people in the past are like oh, he's gone into the future then you know that's that's that then you know yeah so he has to stay forever in the LOE village with the Morlocks dead I suppose that's pretty good suggestion is that he's going to um, he's going to shack up with Samantha Mumba only a week after his fiance was killed. <laughs> Bear in mind, this might be six hundred thousand years to them. It's a week to him. Yeah. So that's a bit naughty. And he tried to go back. Well, he went back in time to save her, and now uh, doesn't really care anymore. Yeah, he quickly got over that, didn't yeah. he? Yeah. <laughs> and blew up his time machine so he could never go back. Yeah. It was the words of wisdom from Jeremy Irons that we were we were obviously too simple to understand. <laughs> so there it is, the time machine from two thousand and two. You know. I, I haven't seen this before tonight and I uh, took a bit of a punt assuming that it would be a bad film because it involved Guy Pearce and Samantha Mumba but I don't think it was that bad. What, what were your overall thoughts um, on this one? I, th- I quite liked it. I, um, I thought there were some good themes and things and it was mediocre enough for it to be in this podcast mm. but I don't think it was dreadful. No, um, it was a bit of like a Sunday morning matinee like with the family yeah. Or like a Boxing Day. If this came on on Boxing Day, you'd be like, oh, cool. Yeah. Like time travel and shit, you know. Yeah, I like the, um, I'm going to keep calling them trolls. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know, I think they were really cool. I think the, um, a lot of the effects were really good, I thought. Yeah, um, for the time. Yeah. They, they, they tended towards practical effects again because of Stan Winston, I think. It's still a bit naff, and I would still say that Guy Pearce is not a very good actor on, on the whole. He did Memento two years before this, which was yeah. obviously his career peak. Yeah, that's a re- that's a great film. But... Yeah, but 
apparently he wanted to be taken less seriously after <laughs> Memento. So there you go. <laughs> Didn't want to keep up with the, you know, Professor Alex. Yeah, I don't want to be a acclaimed actor. Who wants <laughs> that? I'd rather be taken less seriously. I, I, I don't know if that's an exact quote, but if it is, that's hilarious. An actor saying, I want to be taken less seriously. <laughs> Uh, so Professor Alex you got your wish um, thought he was pretty wooden in this Samantha member did an alright job considering she's a pop star I suppose <laughs> Jeremy Irons does alright with the very little he's given I suppose yeah. it wasn't really an act like like the island of Dr. Moreau it's a, an effect fantasy sci-fi picture it's not a not an actor's film is it you know you're not, you're not yeah. expecting um, there weren't many lead roles um. no <laughs> you're not expecting massive um, massive performances in this you just serviceable performances which can get us from this time to this time to this time and just have a bit of an adventure and I thought it worked well on that mm. on that basis so yeah kind of disappointingly not not that terrible this film there we are that is uh, The Island of Dr Moreau and The Time Machine if you could send one of these films 600,000 years into the future <laughs> so that you could never uh, watch them again and if you could send one to an island where you could uh, uh, enjoy it repeatedly which, which which would you banish into the distant future and which would which would you confine to an island paradise um and i enjoyed the time machine more um so i'd keep that i think um <laughs> the time machine is obviously a much better made film yeah with people that care about it but i, I think i'm gonna have to go the other way i think yeah. i have a bit of an attachment to to the island of dr moreau Mm. Uh, as much for the uh, behind-the-scenes shenanigans as as for what actually ended up on the on the screen, and I I like shit that happens on on desert islands. Yeah, like I love Lost and I love stuff like Robinson Crusoe and um, anything or like Lord of the Flies and anything where people get stranded on a desert island. I think is badass and it's hard to mm. fuck that up. Um, they tried hard <laughs> to fuck it up, but I still think it's quite cool and I I think the effects are really cool. The Beast Men, I wanted to see more of them so yeah yes i'm going to differ with you on this one a rare that's about the second only the second time a rare divergence yeah Yeah, i think i just um Mm. i like time travel so i like time travel yeah no they're both great and both books are great so recommendations on these ones we've mentioned a few of them um i would say the two best hg wells adaptations are probably the time machine from 1960 really good film really ahead of its time the effects in that are actually really good the Eloy villages all sort of look like they're in Abba, which is a bit weird. And the Morlocks sort of look like the ugly bloke from Abba. It's very Abba-centric. The Invisible Man, people tend to forget that was H.G. Wells as well. Really great adaptation of that. The Universal one from the um, 30s, uh, starring Claude Rains as the Invisible Man. One of the best ever performances by someone who you never see their face. <laughs> Never ever see his face, and he just like goes for it in his almost Matt Berry like in his uh, in his voice uh, work. Yeah. He just gets furious at people when he's invisible. He's like, you fool <laughs> and stuff like that, and he's like really good. He puts like loads of work into it. He's he's a great actor. The Invisible Man, Black and White Universal one is great as well. War of the Worlds. There've been loads of adaptations of those. The Steven Spielberg one is is pretty good. Have you seen that one? Yeah, yeah. Was that was two thousand. 2005-ish, yeah. yeah, that's pretty good. Although again, I've not seen the original film. We should really watch that version. But yeah, there's been a few, like one in the 50s. It was done by the same guy that did the Time Machine. Um, the original Orson Welles like radio broadcast where people thought it was real. 
<laughs> yeah. Hard to believe now, but when it was broadcast in like the 40s, people shit themselves and thought there was actually a Martian invasion. <laughs> um, that's worth checking out. You can, I think that's on Spotify and YouTube. Orson Welles, War of the Worlds, I'd recommend that. <laughs> Same name, Welles. It's in the yeah. name. Yeah. I recommend people go out of their way to see those films, as well as Lost Souls, The Making of the Island of Dr. Moreau. A very fascinating, bad movie documentary. So, if you have enjoyed any of these films and you want to let us know what you thought of them, or if you want to just leave us a comment or question about any of the films we've done, you can get in touch on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Schlock Tactics. Let us know if there's films you would like us to review that we haven't already. And subscribe as well, obviously, you'll be the first to know when we release a new episode. It's a five star rating on iTunes if you wouldn't mind as well. But that has been another episode of Schlock Tactics. My name has been Ash, and I've been joined once again by Mark. Thanks for listening. And we'll catch you again next time. Bye. Bye.